podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Eddie Gibson. Welcome to another episode of Off the Wall, the podcast here on Anfield Index, where we like to give you a small flavour of some of the content available over on the paywall side of the channel at Anfield Index Pro. Before I start, this show is brought to you in partnership with LibertyShield.com, the perfect VPN companion for all your entertainment and privacy needs, where you can get 25% off everything using coupon code AIVPN. That's AIVPN. You can use Liberty Shield to get a USA VPN. This will allow you to access services such as NBC Sport, as well as American Netflix, Disney+, Hulu, and much more on any device you wish. Now here at Anfield Index, we appreciate that everyone's lives are changing at a rapid rate and it seems to be striking closer to home every day. I was sorry to read that friend of the channel, uh, Paul Machen of the Redmen TV, has been struck by coronavirus this weekend and uh, all our best wishes go to Paul and his family. Without well, that means it's like a broken record uh, wherever you are in the world right now. Please do try and stay at home unless you absolutely have to go out. And here at AI Pro, we're going to try and keep the flow of top quality LFC content winging its way down the web to your ears. In the past few days, uh, on Off The Wall, you'll have heard me uh, bring you the two-part interviews that Trev Downey orchestrated with uh, Jan Mulby and Paul Walsh. And uh, whilst over on the AI Pro subscribers, will have had a chance to listen to two parts of a, a fascinating insight into Steve McMahon's story. Uh, absolutely brilliant content, some of the stuff that Steve had to say. And you can get all of that content on AI Pro now. Also on AI Pro, the paywall side, uh, over the past few days, we released uh, three other really, really good shows. Uh, the next part of our Kings of Europe documentary series with Trev narrating uh, the episode about Nabi Keita, and he was in the company of Jan Mulby, Paul Dalgleish, Gags Tandon, Dan Rhodes, Dave Hendrick, Jonathan Harden, and Gary L. Smith for a comprehensive look at uh, Nabi Keita's contribution to Liverpool's Champions League success uh, last season. The... Uh, all parts, uh, all the other parts of the Kings of Europe are, are there on the pro side. You can listen to the two-part uh, Jurgen Klopp special, which kicked the series off. Uh, then on to the goalkeeper, Alisson Becker. All the defenders, all the midfielders have been covered uh, with the completion of the cater part. And we've just got the uh, attackers to come. And those parts will be uh, out soon as well. So uh, the Kings of Europe documentary series almost complete. We've had incredible feedback on that series. And we're sure you will uh, really enjoy listening to that one. There's also a fascinating Tactics Weekly out now where Dan Rhodes is joined by UEFA A licensed coach Ray Power. Amongst the discussion is the four phases of the game and how Jurgen Klopp has adhered this model uh, since cutting his tactical teeth with Mainz uh, back in Germany. We also have Mr. LFC News. Yes, James Pierce from The Athletic joined Nina Kauser for Media Matters uh, recently to discuss what may happen next and why the show must go on. And to enjoy all this fantastic content, we want to let you know that you can now get AI Pro absolutely free for 30 days instead of the usual seven days. We increased that last week to 30 days with the awareness that a lot of people are going to be at home and trying to keep themselves occupied with uh, with content. So to sign up to all this, all you have to do is head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com. There is absolutely zero obligation to continue after the 30-day trial, and you can cancel at any point. If you decide to stick around, and uh, <laughs> we're pretty sure that once you get hooked on this content, you will even if there are no games on then the cost is only three pounds 49 per month or 39 pounds 99 per year 
So today on Off The Wall, we're going to give you part one of the Mark Lawrenson story. We'll hear all about the early days of Mark's football career and uh, why his mother had hoped he may find a slightly different uh, vocation. Laura also describes Bobby Charlton signing in for Preston and his subsequent move to Brighton before that club record transfer, which saw Bob Paisley bring him to Liverpool for almost a million pounds back in 1981. Some cracking stories here from Mark uh, as you might expect from a seasoned TV pundit, I guess, uh, including the tales of how Arsenal tried to lure him to Highbury with the wonders of underfloor heating and how Kenny Dalgleish even offered to act as his personal chauffeur. Now, we'd love to hear your feedback on any of the shows on either Anfield Index or Anfield Index. The best way to do that is to join our free Discord community. It's a thriving community of Reds and it's underpinned by healthy and opinion debate far more insightful than you'll get on the likes of Twitter and Facebook. The place to do that is anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. That's Discord, D-I-S-C-O-R-D, completely free to join. Just type in that link to your browser and uh, start getting hooked up with us uh, over on Discord. Alternatively, uh, we always welcome feedback on the traditional social media platforms. We are on Facebook. Just search for Anfield Index there or, of course, on Twitter. We're, we're very active on Twitter, uh, at Anfield Index or at Anfield Index Pro. So let's get this show on the road. Here is Mark Lawrenson in the company of Trev Downey for the interview part one. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the interview on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Trev Downey, and you, lovely subscriber, are you. So all we need now is a genuine Reds legend to speak to us for a while, and we're in business. Luckily then, on the other end of the Skype line is a man who very much fits that description. A player of poise, skill, pace, and talent. This articulate gent and his forthright opinions have since become synonymous with television analysis of the game. Having represented Preston and Brighton, he transferred to Liverpool in 1981 for a record fee and had an obscenely successful stay at the club until 1988, amassing some 356 appearances and notching 18 goals as medals from five league titles, one European Cup, an FA Cup and three League Cups vied for space in his shelves. As if that wasn't enough, he also earned 39 caps from my native Ireland, went on to have an even longer career as one of the most instantly recognisable men in football punditry. I speak, as you have no doubt already guessed, of Mr. Mark Lawrence. And Mark, thank you so much for talking to me tonight for the interview. Absolute pleasure. Listen, you're the first person ever, when they mention your medals, not to not to mention the old charity shields. And you're absolutely spot on because they don't count. Although Jose counts them all the time, doesn't he? He does. And I, I, I do you know what? I'm trying to keep in the Liverpool tradition there because I, I recall from uh, a few previous interviews that the lads were saying that it wasn't really taken massively serious by yeah. you guys. No, it was it was a pre-season friendly. The only difference was that obviously it was at Wembley, and you raised hundreds of thousands of quid for whichever charity they, de- they deemed worthy at the time. So yeah, it was it was. Only, I can't even remember, you know, how many how many charity shield games I actually played in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it, it's just it, 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 it's it's a really interesting take because, like you say, for some people they <laughs> they've uh, they've invested it with a little bit more importance yeah. on on the CV. trophy front. It's all about your CV, Trev. It's all about the CV, Mark. It really is, man. It really is. Now, as you're a man who wore the green of my country with a lot of distinction, we'll have to talk to you about your international career later. But will you just indulge me very briefly before we begin, because I'm a bit nervous this evening ahead of this two-legged World Cup qualifier against Jan Malby's Danish mob. I will never hear the end of it if this goes against us. So have you any words of encouragement for me, or do you think that you, uh, do you share my reservations, basically, about what Martin O'Neill's lads can hope for uh, in Copenhagen and then in Dublin on Tuesday? Well, I saw Jan um, at the Man City Arsenal game, and we we both kind of sat down and just went, you know what? The two games are 50-50 in terms of either team qualifying because 
obviously he knows a lot more about Denmark than, than I'll ever know. And he was just saying that they've changed the way they play. They're a little bit kind of rather direct from the back. Bentner up front, Ericsson playing off him. And the idea is to get Ericsson on the ball more than any other player, as, as you would do, because he, he really seriously is, is a top player. But the thing about the thing about Ireland is we're actually better when other teams force the pace. We're just really good at sitting in. We don't we don't have too many players that we're getting most other kind of top international teams, but we have a fantastic work ethic. I think the manager gets the mood absolutely right. He's very clever, Martin. He challenges absolutely everyone. He's, he's a great wordsmith. He gets you thinking about your position in the team and your performance. And we are never really undercooked. So from that point of view, I would say now I would, I would take nil-nil in Denmark and then back at the Aviva when, well, we haven't got a roof, but if we did have a roof, it would probably come off on what's Tuesday night, isn't it? And listen, we've got 120 minutes maybe at home and I think that, that would be a big advantage to us. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope so. That would be a nice way for for uh, for the week to pan out. Look, I'd like Mark if you're amenable to chat just initially about your very beginnings in football. I've asked uh, Jan and Peter and Paul before you if they remembered the moment where basically they realised that football was definitely going to be the path for them. And Paul said there was no real kind of Damascus moment. It was just it was just it was his plan, and that was it. And Peter said basically he told me stuff about uh, about always having a ball at his feet. And Jan again sort of it was something that just sort of evolved. Did you? have any sort of a realization that this is it for me this is what i want to do not really but my dad played didn't he so um you know my dad uh he, he only made one single appearance for, for preston and i mean it was in the years where basically they all had jobs um he was a draftsman my dad was actually a really really good cricketer i was invited at 16 onto the books of lancashire cricket club so i was off wow. the con- um but uh, yeah, it, it was it was all really down to my dad in terms probably of my talent. But I think like like any lad, when 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 your parents, my mum and dad both worked, but my dad worked more than my mother, and my mum kind of drove me to every single game. She was the you know archetypal taxi driver, which of course we've all become ourselves for for our own kids. I suppose um, I played in the school team in the in the uh, in my junior school, and I was the first person ever from the school to play for Preston schoolboys under 11s well it would be under 11s yeah and I, I was picked at nine so I kind of thought or I hoped obviously that I, I might have a chance and people now that I meet that used to be involved um I used to go to school in just outskirts of Preston called Penn with them people there they were all saying to me how oh, we, we knew you were destined to become a footballer well it, it wasn't quite that easy to be honest with you and there was, and there was times when I was 15 16 when I had no idea what I was going to do, probably more as I say, a cricketer rather than a footballer. But um, yeah, I could, but I can remember, you know, it's bizarre things. And it's, people say to you, what's the first thing you can remember as a kid or how old were you? I can't really remember anything until I was about five or six. But, but I, what I do remember when I was uh, nine years old, when England played in the World Cup final, my mate who lived six doors up, his name was uh, Stephen Dewhurst, his dad had it like a big telly. And we watched the World Cup in his lounge. And we actually, when when it when the extra time kicked in, we we played outside and we had our own kind of uh, World Cup final. And um, <laughs> yeah, you just remember odd things like that. And I, I beat him, of course, and he still reminds me I always beat him. I saw him the other day actually, one of the Preston games. It was it was, it was good to see him. And boy, he's he's probably done better than me. He certainly got more money than me. 
<laughs> yeah. So a little bit of consolation for those yeah, perpetual yeah. beatings he used to give me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, he actually, I think he's, he's, he's retired now. He retired at 50, but he was like um, the chief buyer for Volvo Trucks Europe. Wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I said, why couldn't it have been cars? He could have loaned me one, but it was trucks. <laughs> yeah, do you know what? You can, you can nearly go with one of those, Mark. I could yeah. just see you could see you bombing around uh, Southport in one of those things. Absolutely. Listen, find all the grannies. Yeah, I believe that you know. Uh, from what you're saying, basically, there was an awful lot of sport in your life as a kid, and basically, it was it was it was a, it was a, a kind of a toss up between cricket and football, and hopefully, one of them would have been the thing. And you possibly, as you say, you maybe you, you don't know, it could easily have worked out for you in cricket as well. But hmm. I read on, in, from several sources, and this again, you'll have to forgive me. Some of these things are a little bit apocryphal because I don't know, but I read yeah. a couple of times in different interviews that maybe your mom had an alternative idea for what you might do in the future. Oh, yeah. My mum wanted me to be a priest. Yeah. Well, how long did that last, Mark? Listen, if it lasted more than a day, it was a day too long. To be right. Honest with you. Um, and th- what had happened was that uh, she wanted to send me to a boarding school past my, what they used to be called, the 11 plus. Right. Um, and, you know, entitled me to go to the grammar school. But she wanted, we had a couple of lads a couple of years before me who'd gone to a boarding school um, on the outskirts, uh, in, well, in Dumfries, just basically right next to the end of England in terms of going up north, just past Carlisle. And she knew their mothers and their, and two kids were doing brilliantly at school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and she wanted me to go there, but also, as I say, harboured this thing about me being a priest. I mean, God knows why, excuse the pun. But I just said to her, look, I said, if if they play football at this school, I'll go. And guess what? They didn't. So that was a that was a result and a half to me for me because I then went to the local grammar school, which was probably a ten minute bus ride. Um and we had at our school fifteen football pitches. We had unbelievable facilities, absolutely fantastic. And we had would you believe we had our own swimming baths, which was wow. so, so unusual. It was and you know, and it it was a good school. We were taught by um the Jesuits. Um so we got a little bit of a battering now and again, as you can imagine. But it, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it because it was it was also um, great in terms of learning. We did Latin every single day. And, and, you know, that's the basis, basically, for most European languages because I speak a bit of Spanish and speak a bit of French. So, so, so that was good. So the deal not to be a priest, obviously, um, that was also good for me because she just kind of gave up in the end. When, when you were talking just before, Trevor, as well, about sporting things, we, at our school then, we had uh, the under 11s. We had um, a rounders team. Do you know what rounders is? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I won. A, I won an all Ireland championship, Mark. If you can believe well, there that. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, we we won the Preston and District uh, rounders championship. We never entered a team in before. I, I, I was captain of the team, and of course it was mixed. Um, oh yeah. Which was all good fun. And the night we won, or the late afternoon we won at I think it was Fullwood High School. Howard Kendall presented us with our trophy and our medals. Spooky. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, he, yeah. Preston, he was at Preston then. He was still a kid at Preston. 
Wow. And, and Mark, I mean, <laughs> I actually love that story because ironically, you sort of found your vocation away from where people normally find vocation. You you end up in this sort of uh, playground of, of, of football pitches and, and, and sporting opportunities. It's 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 a wonderful it's wonderful how it panned out. And how what, when when does the step come to to your 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 hometown club to Preston? When do you when do you eventually link up with them? Well, I mean, um I I had a season ticket. I, I I went on watching them. I was I think be about eleven, twelve when I was when my mother first let me go and watch go on the bus and stuff, and and, and watch them play. I played for Preston Schoolboys who would be kind of under fourteen, so I was kind of always on the radar. Radar, um, and North End came to me, and I signed schoolboy forms with them. I presume I think I think you could sign at fourteen, then it was fourteen to sixteen. So. I wasn't, if I was going to play professionally, I wasn't going anywhere else. Although at the time, West Ham were interested and also Blackpool. Blackpool were actually a much better uh, team than Preston as well at the time. I, mean, I think they might have actually been old first division as well. Um, so played for played for the schoolboys. And then <clears throat> I kind of um, took my O-levels and my mum said, I'd like you to stay on and take your A-levels. Well, obviously, you, you know, I, I was 16 and Preston was sort of saying, look, you need you need to come. You need to come now when you can be an apprentice for two years and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, we not so much that we struck a deal, you know, because my mum had let me off with the priest thing, thank goodness. She kind of, <laughs> said, she kind of said, well, look, what, do a year at school taking your A-levels, but, you know, we'll let you go and train and all those kind of things. And obviously when you're taking your A-levels, it's not necessarily, you know, um, learning all day and you do, you do get a bit of time off. But... So Bobby Charlton <clears throat> took over at Preston and my mum had actually remarried and my stepfather was on the board. He was one of the board of directors at Preston and um, Bobby came to the house one night and he just said, look, um, in front of my mother and stuff, he said, look, you know, we, we think Mark needs to come now because, you know, <clears throat> he needs to start developing a little bit quicker and stuff. And if he's playing with better players, he will do so. So I actually went at the age of 17 and... As I say, in those years, you had a two-year apprentice thing. But um, if you signed at 17, you're automatically a professional. So what they said to me, said, look, look, you'll uh, you'll get professionals money, which was like only 30 quid a week plus a tenner if I played in the first team. And he said, but you get professionals money. But we suggest, given the situation and your stepfather on the board, that you do all the jobs that the apprentices have to do, which is clean boots and repair the stand and... Um, all those kind of things. So they said, otherwise you're going to get so much abuse. You know, most of it obviously um, good-hearted, but you just never know. So, so that's what I basically ended up doing. And and after a while, <clears throat> um, they seemed to think that I was I was going to be fine. And my mum just said to me, look, you can you can forget about your A levels. Don't worry, you can always take your final year again if if you flunk out of football. Mark, I'm I'm really struck by a story which involves. Bobby Charlton calling around to your house. I mean, yep. f- first of all, Preston. I know it's I know it's your 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 boyhood club. I know it's your your yep. hometown club and all the rest of it. But it is a club of great tradition and status. Yeah. And you know, I, I I read somewhere that the, you got presented with a picture of your dad play, uh, stood stood beside Tom Finney on the pitch. I mean, this is this is <laughs> remarkable That's, stuff. And yeah, it's better than that. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, go on. Yeah. When it. He made his debut at Tottenham. Now, if you remember, Tottenham were a massive team, fifties, sixties. Yeah. Absolutely the best. And the, the picture, the three of them, my dad's in the middle, 
On one side is Sir Tom Finney, and on the other side is Sir Ralph Ramsey. Oh, bloody hell. Mm. Tis a bloody hell, you're right. Yeah, wow. That is, and that's just kind of what I'm getting at. And then all of a sudden, now obviously you knew you were good and you knew you were handy and people would have been telling you this, but Bobby Charlton's <laughs> called on your door. Well, I wasn't, I mean, I was I was a left winger. Yeah. And um, I didn't like tackling. Would you believe this? It, this was like mad. I, I didn't really like tackling, but they thought I was a bit, do you remember a guy called Tommy Hutchison? Yeah. Yeah, left winger. And I was the same kind of frame, gangly and all that kind of stuff. I was, and I was a bit like him and... Um, and after a while, the, the, you know, they said to him, "Look, you know, you, you, you've got to, you've got to do the hard work as well as just getting on the ball and going past people and dribbling and all that, all that kind of stuff." And, and previously, I'd, when I was taking my first year of the A levels, and I, I was coming to training on a Tuesday and Thursday night with lads who were like two or three years older than me, and Arthur Cox was the assist. This was, this was, this was before Bobby, so this would be, I'd be about 14, 15, 16 before Bobby uh, got his job at the club, and Alan Ball Senior, Alan Ball's dad, he he was he was a manager, and Arthur Cox was his assistant, and he took a shine to me, Arthur Cox, and he would come on a Tuesday night, and uh, we used to have the training ground was next door to the pitch, or one of the training pitches next door to the pitch, and we'd go and have a warm up and have a game, and I'd play in the left wing and he'd play right back, and he would kick me to death, for like an hour, <laughs> honestly, kick me to death, kick me to death, and all sorts, and then it took me it took me a while to realise after. After about four or five separate occasions, as in separate training nights, not just separate tackles, I just whacked him, as in in a tackle. And he, he got up, dusted himself off, and I thought, oh, I'm in trouble. And he just went, came over, shook my hands, and he said, son, my job is done. See you later. So I kind of, the, it was my light bulb moment, if you will. And then the next thing was um, playing in the reserves. It was great at Preston because we had a really young reserve team and you played in a league called the Central League, but you played all the, all the major teams. So you played Liverpool, Everton, Man City, Man United, all, all Aston Villa, all those, the, the top, top teams, Leeds. And what would happen, of course, was they only had one substitute, but they had squads of 17 or 18. So if you played, if you played against like the big teams that we used to call, you, you, there'd be like six or seven internationals who couldn't get in the team, who were playing against you. We were like 17-year-old kids, and it was just an absolutely fantastic grounding. And, you know, I never, I remember one night we played Liverpool. Um, I mean, the pitch was waterlogged and absolutely everything. You would never even go anywhere near it in terms of play nowadays. But Liverpool insisted on playing because all these lads needed a game. There was, there was Tommy Smith, there was John Toshite, there was Brian Hall, there was Steve Highway, I think Phil Boersmer. And it was just like amazing in terms of it, it didn't half bring you on. And the other, the other thing as well is, is that um, I actually, I, I am subject of two quiz questions. And the, and the first one is this. It, we, we once played crew in an FA Cup game and we, play, we played it at, most, at one of the most famous stadiums in the world. No one ever gets it because they just don't think it was Anfield. Because we drew at Crewe, we drew at Preston, and then you had to go to a neutral ground, and Anfield said, oh, don't worry, you can come and play here. So I actually played at Anfield when I was probably 17, 18, in, in a oh, proper game. Wow. And the other one, while I'm on the subject, is I am the only person alive who's played in a team managed by Sir Bobby and Jack Charlton. Is that a fact? Hmm. Huh. Yeah. Obviously, Jack with the national team and Sir Bobby at Preston. 
Excellent. Mm. I, I, I feel duly armed now for the next time I go down to the local pub for a quiz. That's excellent. Yeah. That's that's excellent. Um, Mark, you, so your your time at Deepdale. I mean, you 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 there are names there like 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 Bobby Charlton, Arthur Cox. I think Nobby Styles was around at the time. And you, yeah, Nobby Styles was in charge in the reserves. I mean, he's not he's not very well at the moment, as I think most people know. He was he was one of the nicest guys ever. Nobby Nobby was fantastic with me because. Um, he turned me back after after training, doing work on different stuff in the afternoon. He basically turned me into a defender from a left winger. We were we were away at Aston Villa, and you know, as I told you, like half the first team would play if if they were hadn't played in the in the uh, in the first team game at the weekend, and we, we were four nil down at half time. And he said to me, "Just do me a favour." He said, "Just come and play full back." He said, "Let let me have a look at you." And at the end of the game, he said, "That's your position now." He said, "Maybe not full back, but you know." eventually not full back but at the moment that's going to be your position so I had a lot to uh, to thank him for and he used to do do this thing in the afternoon with me and he'd, he'd work on different kind of stuff and everything and I lived we lived in Blackpool actually we had a hotel my, my mother and my stepmother and father as well in, in those days so I used to go get a bus from Deepdale Preston railway station jump on the train uh, get off Blackpool North and then walk 20, 20 minutes to, to, to the house but he used to say to me every day, he said, you're going home? And I says, yeah, yeah. And he says, I'll give you a lift to Preston Station. Now, Nobby lived on the outskirts of Manchester. Preston Station was absolutely the worst possible way for him. But he, he insisted. He insisted all the time. It probably, and in the end, he probably had 40 minutes onto his journey there and back. And he, he insisted that he took me. He said, look, you know, I would expect anyone else to do this for my son. So, um, no, he was, an, he was an absolute star in all honesty. To be fair, I'm I'm listening to these stories and these people taking an interest okay. in, in in yeah and, and you 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 as a young man, Mark, and I mean you build up eventually, obviously, and you you, you get your you're establishing the first team, I think, player of the year in your final season there with with Preston. Uh, was there ever any any question that you were going to go on to the next level? Was it was it just kind of a, a inevitable, or was there was there a little draw there because you were you know close to home and the and the ties you have with the club? Was there was it was it always in your ambitions to to move on as you establish yourself in the first team there yeah yeah i don't think there's any doubt about that because preston would be what uh, the league now will be league one so the old third division yeah um and i sort of played some games towards the end of one season i think i played three so bobby gave me my, my debut uh, with all my mates from school as well on the touchline that was so funny they were, slow, they were slaughtering me i hadn't even touched the ball and i played against watford my debut for preston and they had a left winger called bobby downs i never fit he's quite good as well all left foot quite quick and everything and i nutmegged him and it was an absolute complete mistake Trev. really serious it was just a complete fluke and of course all my mates and it was on that side where all my mates were and they're all cheering and absolutely everything if only they knew um, <laughs> so and i got in i got in the team actually when so bobby left so bobby didn't like being the manager he just did not enjoy it and and he decided to leave and he he left over a decision preston sold uh, a centre-back called John Bird, who was a club captain. He was great. He was a headache kick at centre-back, played every single week. His performances were always nine out of ten. But, you know, that that that, that was his level, and he, he got sold to Newcastle. So he went. And our new manager, Harry Catrick, who obviously won the league with Everton. With Everton, yeah. Yeah, you know, very, very, I mean, you know, Kendall Harvey Ball. He had all those kind of players, Joe Royal, etc. Very, very good manager. And... The first day he came, we were playing Bolton Reserves 
and a horrible midweek midweek match. The weather was foul and everything. And after about 25 minutes, I just I went into a block tackle and I just tweaked my ligaments a little bit. So so I had to come off, obviously. And I, I came off and they took me straight inside, put me on one of the physio tables and just got a big bag of ice, which, of course, was was obviously that's all you ever did in those days. And he came down from the director's box, Harry Catterick, and he came and he said, what's your name, son? So I told him my name and he said, right. He said, I think you might be fit in the next three to four weeks. And he said, and I'm saying to you now, when you are, you will be in my first team. He hadn't even seen the first team play yet. Right. And, uh, and he was true to his word. And 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 it, it, like I say, it, it, there's there's progress all the way through there to to being you know uh, top of the tree in the la, in in the in, in your last season and eventually taking a step up a level to Brighton and 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 Alan Mullery I believe was 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 the man in charge there. Am I right in saying that there was also interest even at that stage uh, from Liverpool that yeah. uh, that Brighton actually beat out? Yeah, well I I knew nothing about it. None of us had agents or anything. He didn't. You were only ever told something, you know, after it had happened. They bid 70 grand. Preston wanted 100, which was actually 112 with a VAT at 12%. Preston wanted 100. Listen, can I tell you, my stepfather never even told me. (laughs) I lived in the same house. I didn't, you know, which is fair enough. It just, he didn't, I suppose he didn't want me to get a little bit, whoa, I could have gone to Liverpool and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, um, so they could have took me for 70 and then four years later they paid 900, which is a little bit of a difference. But, um, yeah. But I, I, and the other, the other thing was that, um, I also could have gone to Newcastle round about the same, uh, right, same time. They were, they were managed by a, car, a guy called Richard Dennis. Apparently he offered 85 and Preston said, no, we, we won 100. I'm not sure actually if, if, if I'd have gone to Newcastle, um, even though they were in a higher league than, than, than Brian. And, uh, I went away at the end of the season on my first like footballer's holiday with most of the first team squad. So you can imagine what that was like at 17, 18 caught you. We went to Benidorm and I'd only been there two or three days and I was on the Guinness and Blackcurrant because I just couldn't drink Guinness without a Blackcurrant and I needed building up, et cetera, et cetera. And I got a phone call um, and it was from Alan Mullery. And he said, oh, we've agreed a deal with Preston today to take you. And I went, oh, right, okay, okay. Um, he said, what do you think? And I said, well, um, I don't really know, Mr. Mullery. I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on holidays, to be honest with you. And I'm back sort of, you know, a week, a week on Tuesday. He said, so, you know, what if I come and speak to you then or you come and speak to me? Or, I didn't really know what to say. And he went, oh, no, he said, uh, he said the chairman, the vice chairman are coming over to talk to you. And I went, right, okay. So... The day went on and then my stepfather came on to me and told me, you know, exactly what had happened. He said, you don't have to sign if you don't want, but we've said you can go if you want to go, all that kind of stuff and everything. And so my stepfather on the telephone negotiated my wages with with Brighton, who who turned up, as I said, the chairman and the vice chairman, but they were delayed. Um, The flight was severely delayed. There was some really bad weather over over the Med or something, and they were seven hours late. Well, I, I have to tell you, Trevor, when, when they turned up, I was like three sheets to the wind. <laughs> the boys had started at lunchtime and I said, no, I was Adam, I can't drink, I can't drink, I've got to speak to these two guys, I can't drink, can't drink. Well, you know, I kept getting a, a call, well, it could be two o'clock, it could be three o'clock, four o'clock. In the end, I thought, they're not coming, so I was on it. And eventually, eventually they turned up and would you believe I signed a blank contract? A blue blank Con- the contracts were blue in those days between clubs. I signed a, a blank contract on the premise that my stepfather had agreed my wages with, with, uh, with Brighton. 
Wow. I mean, that, that, that's, that's quite the act of faith there, Mark. Or was it the act of a, of, of a drunken young man? Which, which would you put it down to? A little bit of both. But, but you know, my <laughs> stepfather said, look, it'll be absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. And, and what I didn't realize is that the chairman, Mike Bamber and Dudley Sizens, the vice chairman, didn't drink. And I oh. said, oh, my God, if they can really spot our Brahms unless I am, this is, this is, this is not going to happen. Anyway, there was a sequel to that story. So they went back. So I've signed. They've agreed with Preston, all the money, all that kind of stuff. And they said, right, when you get back, um, we'll send you the train fare and whatever and, and come down to Brighton and, and all those kind of things. And you have your medical. I said, yeah, yeah, no worries. So within two days of coming back, I go to Brighton with my stepfather, uh, which was good because obviously, you know, you've got, you've got somebody with there and he knows exactly what, you know, you've spoken about in terms of the terms of the contract and stuff. So I went down, agreed all the contracts, rubber stamped all that. That was all good. And they said, right, you know, medical. Anyway, so, um, the Brighton doctor was, his name was Dr. Schles. I'll, I'll never ever forget. It was a really, really nice book, but it was a little bit difficult to understand. He had a really kind of heavy Jewish accent, but it, it was quite difficult to understand. Anyway, so, I have the normal, I didn't, I didn't have uh, x-rays or anything, just to check my joints and all those kind of things and, and whatever. And, um, and then they took a, a, a blood test and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, it sort of went quiet for a couple of hours and I was kind of left in this, in this room, literally for two hours. Just these nurses kept from the hospital, just kept where the medic kept coming and bringing me tea and biscuits and sandwiches and all that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, what, what's wrong here? Doctor came in and he said, um, Mark, he said, I'm really sorry to tell you, I think the transfer might be aborted. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you failed it. I said, on what basis, doc? And they were, and I looked at them and he went, um, yeah, we think you're diabetic because you, 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 your blood sugar levels are through the roof. I said, right. And the guy said to me, the doc said to me, do you, um, got a sweet tooth i said unbelievably sweet tooth i got it from my mother i could if you give me a packet of chocolate biscuits doc i would eat them all of them if, even if there was 32 absolutely no danger although i was skinny as a rat to be honest with you i was like shaggy from scooby-doo and i said yeah i would eat them all. i said oh he said but he, no he said that it, it cannot just be that he says right he said i'll tell you what we'll do he said we'll put this on ice for the night um, and tomorrow we'll, we'll give you some more blood tests he said don't eat anything sugary bloody bloody blah yeah okay 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 anyway Next day came, I was having a, I was, I had eight blood tests every half an hour and the re results were virtually the same. And he said, we're, we're absolutely staggered. He said, you've played every single game last year for Preston, player of the year, played for Ireland, all these kind of things. We, we just can't work this out. And he said, he said, you know, at the end of the season, so what, what did you do? I said, oh, doc, I went to, um, I went to Benidorm. I said, that's where the chairman and, and Dudley Sisons came to, to sign me. And he said, right, what were you drinking? And I went, well, I was on the Guinness. He went, yeah, and I went black currant, and he went, what? I said I was drinking Guinness and black currant. So then, of course, he, he says to me, it's a bit like the doctor, isn't it? When you when you go and have your checkup, he said, how many pints a day did you have? And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he went, look, if you tell me the truth, I will not tell the manager. He said, anyway, <laughs> anyway, you're out of season. I said, doc, we started at like. 12 o'clock, that was the rule. We would never start before 12. And some nights we didn't finish till 2, 3, 4 in the morning. He went, oh, my God. He said, that explains everything. So I was fine after that. That will do it. That's quite a lot of blackcurrant and alcohol sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, your time at Brighton, like, I mean, look, I hope you'll excuse me. I don't want to 
barge through this, but I do want to get to the Liverpool thing. I know you 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 achieve promotion with Brighton and and uh, and you, you look obviously you have a successful time at the Goldstone Ground, but I think the club gets into a little bit of bother financially. And I'm wondering, did that have an effect, or was that? Do you think that had something to do with the fact that they were quite happy to take the goods of a million uh, pounds for you from Liverpool then when that eventually happened? Do you think the two things were connected in any way? Yeah, oh, absolutely, most definitely. The thing is, we had my first year. We actually we we missed out on automatic promotion by goal difference as it, goal average as it was in those days and we were I think we came third the top two went up and we were like loads of points clear of the fourth place team Blackburn so it was like really harsh and we kind of thought oh we missed our chance and then of course the next year we got promotion which 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 was which was fantastic but um no and and I knew I would be sold and one of the main reasons was in my last season, so this is what the fourth season. Yeah, they, so they gave 1980, me, 1981, that kind of time. Yeah, they gave me a ten-year contract. Brighton wow. Gave, okay. They gave me and a guy called Peter Ward who played for England when we, when Brighton were in the third division, as was. They gave us two uh, ten-year contracts each, which was just a way of kind of um, obviously giving us more money, but basically, absolutely, totally ring fencing uh, themselves, and then. I didn't know at the time, but Mullers, uh, or Fatal as we used to call him, he'd he'd fallen out with with the chairman because the chairman had gone right. You know, he said uh, we need to get some money in, and Mullers just said, look, you know, if, you, if you're gonna if you're gonna sell Lawrenson, he said, I tell you what, he said, uh, Arsenal, Man United, Liverpool will take him tomorrow. He said they ring me every single day about taking him. He said, but the thing is, he said, he said Manchester United and Arsenal will give us three players each. And some money, he said. So, hey, I'm getting the players, and you know, you're also getting money. And and um, and then the chairman just said to him, he said, well, I'll, I'll tell you something. He said, we just want the money. And he said, we know that Liverpool will pay us cash. When I say cash, I mean they just paid it all straight away. They didn't want, you know, they didn't want to sell any players to to, to Brighton or whatever. And and Mullers had fallen out with them because they'd never told him and all those kind of things. So, um. And what happened was, I didn't know anything about this at all. And it's like start of the season. Well, it was pre- it was pre-season. I went home and um, just sat in the house and the phone rang. And it was Arsenal. And they said, uh, we've been given permission to speak to you uh, tonight. Remember Terry Neal? You know Terry Neal, of course. He, yeah. he, he was the manager. So so we'd like to meet you at Gatwick. Uh, uh, hotel at Gatwick Airport, uh, like in two hours, whatever. So, okay, went to meet them. Terry Neal offered me less money than I was on on my ten-year contract, and he, tr- he he tried to sell the kind of the marble halls of Highbury, the underfloor heating, and playing with O'Leary. Well, the first two, I said, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> not the third one. Um, and I said no. I just and I was on my own, you know. I thought I was quite brave. I said no. I said I'm, I'm getting more money at. Um, at, at uh, Brighton, I said, and by the way, I said, Man- I know Manchester United have been on because I got a message when I was at the airport uh, in the hotel waiting to see Terry Neal and uh, Ron Atkinson had asked me to ring him when I got back and not to do anything were his words. So I go back, um, speak to Ron Atkinson. He said, I'll give you more money than Liverpool. He said, the only problem is, he said, um, we might have to wait a week or two to do the deal because they'd signed Frank, hadn't they? Frank Stapleton. He was going to the tribunal. Right. And Ron just said to me, look, we, we don't know how much we're going to have to pay for Frank, so we've just got to wait 
for a week. We're not saying we won't sign you, but we just, you know, it's just one of those things we need to wait for a week. He said, but we've agreed the players that we're going to give to, to Brighton and, and the money that we're going to pay them and, and all those kind of things. He said, but I, he said, Laurel, I will give you more money than you get Liverpool. And I said, Ron, I mean, Ron was an absolute massive Liverpool fan anyway. And I, and I, and, and I said, look, you know, um, I don't know. I said, I'll, I'll, well, let me think about it. And then I got another phone call. It was just a mad night. I got another phone call and it was one of the journalists um, from who followed Liverpool and they were just coming back from a pre-season in Switzerland. Colin Woody's name, the journal, wrote for the Daily Mail and Woody, as he became known to me eventually, a really nice bloke, he said, uh, Liverpool are in for you. Did you know? And I went, no. I said, I've, I've just spoken to Ron Atkinson and I said, I went and met Terry Neal tonight. He said, oh, Liverpool are in for you. They want to meet you tomorrow. And I went, well, the club haven't told me anything. And he said, well, they will. And I'm literally then putting the phone down. It rang again. It was a club. And they said, look, um, the chairman's agreed that you can speak to Liverpool tomorrow at Heathrow Airport in, in one of the hotels. Um, in the meantime, in the morning, Terry Neal rang me and they were going to, Arsenal were going to Cyprus. And he said, um, he said, I've heard from the club. He said that you're meeting Liverpool tomorrow. I said, yeah, yeah. Uh, the hotel's called the Aerial Hotel. It's right by the right by the main ro- runway. It's still there, I think. It's like a round hotel. And he said, I'll be in the next hotel. If the talks break down, he said, we've had a rethink and obviously we're going to come up with a different offer for you. And I went, right, OK. But I had that feeling, well, you know, why didn't you offer me that money at the first place? What are you sort of trying to get me on the cheap? So I was a little bit mm, not sure. You know what? Within seven minutes of meeting the old chief executive Liverpool, Peter Robinson, and the chairman John Smith, well, it became Sir John Smith and, and Bob Paisley. I was, I was, I was done. I was yeah, absolutely yeah, whatever. And they were great. So, um, Mark, I, I, I have to I, listen. This is this is kind of stunning stuff that you're you're laying out for us here. But two things really strike me about that that I have to pull you up on first. Terry Neal was giving you some sort of changing rooms style uh, introduction around Highbury and trying to sell you on the club via underfloor heating. Yeah, <laughs> underfloor heating, which of course no football club had apart from Arsenal. And like Herbert Chapman and his bust in the marble hallway. Oh, and, and, and O'Leary, I mean, you wow. would have signed for them, would you? And the second thing that I, I, I you, you just threw it in there as a little throwaway as if we'd all know it. Ron Atkinson was a Liverpool fan. Yeah, massive. He absolutely adored Liverpool. I mean, he never, ever publicly said it, but I've met him loads and loads and loads of times. In fact, he was in charge of a team we played in Israel. It was like, I can't remember something that happened in Israel. And a few of us went over and played. And uh, he was out. We got, we got him so drunk one night and he, he absolutely totally coughed. Brilliant. Oh, man, that, that is that that is in the middle of these great stories. That's two actually absolute gems. That I don't think people have a clue about. So I want I, I do want to get this story about 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 um, um, the day that Bob Paisley comes to sort of bring you to the club, because I've read this from a few different places. And the over sort of arching thing that connects them, it's not it's it's usually not your words, Mark. So that's why uh, there seems to be discrepancy sometimes in the tale. But the overarching thing seems to be that let's just say. Bob didn't exactly put on the Ritz to come and meet you. He was just the guy that we see in all the photographs, the kind of avuncular figure, uh, you know, v- vaguely sort of, 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 of shambolic in, in, in the way that he went on, but just, just that guy that we all are familiar with from, yeah. from, from legend and stories. That is that, is that the case? Yeah. And he, he was, I think the best description I would give about Bob Paisley would be like your granddad in charge of the team. He, he was that, he was that kind of bloke. But what happened was the night before, um, 
Oh, when they met at Heathrow, we drove home. They drove me. They drove me back. There was me. There was Jimmy Case. He was all. He was going to go to 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 Brighton, but Brighton were paying money for him. It was. It was. I don't. That's how they structured the deal. Um, there was five of us going back up the motorway, including Bob and Peter Robertson. There was. There'd been a really bad accident. It took us six hours, even in those days, to get from Heathrow back up uh, to Liverpool. And it was kind of nine off nine at night by the time I got to the ground. And I had a medical. We had two doctors, both, two brothers, both Irish. One, the big fat one, would suck the poison out of your blood. And the other fella, the, the, the tall, scratchy, thinny one, was useless, right? <laughs> we got, got, we, I got the useless one. And you didn't have, I, I did not have, Trevor, I did not have any x-rays for three months after I signed for Liverpool. £900,000 plus VAT. And... Um, and that was only for the insurance, apparently. But, you you know, you imagine nowadays the, the, the rigmarole that players go through in terms of, of, of when they sign and, and the medicals is the medicals that takes hours and hours and hours. Anyway, the, so the, I'm in the treatment room with a doc and he's testing, my, you know, my knee joints, my ankle joints, all that kind of thing. And, of course, it's getting late. You forget how old Bob was. And he kind of, he came in and he said to the doc, Doc, what are you doing? He says, Bob, he says, you're going to spend an awful lot of money on this fella. He said, so I'm giving him the full treatment. And he looked at me and he said to me, Mark, he said, how many games did you play for Brighton? He said, no, he said, tell you what, how many games did you miss for Brighton last year? And I said, I think I missed two boss. I was already calling boss by then. I think I missed two boss. And he went, Doc, get home, will you? He's done. He's fine. He's absolutely fine. So they took me to the hotel, um, the Atlantic Tower near the library buildings. And in the morning, the concierge rang and he said, uh, Mr. Page is here to take you to the ground. So I came out, suited and booted, and he was stood by his car. He had he had like a oh, like a gold Ford Granada. Honestly, could you imagine that? It was gold. It was like, wow, it was horrible. Right. <laughs> and as I came out the building at the hotel, he got out of his car and he had his slippers on and he had a cardigan on. And this is the best bit. He'd obviously had egg for breakfast in the morning because half of it was down the front of the cardigan. And I just thought, yeah, you've just won the European Cup in what the, the, the month before against um, Madrid in Paris, Alan Kennedy goal that he never meant. And, and I just thought, you'll do for me. So, yeah, he, he was, he had, and I never, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't tell your new manager, oh, by the way, boss, um, you've got some egg on your cardigan. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> But but I I imagine that again it could be me and it, this is this is kind of the thing that you know people like myself used to just be starstruck and dream about. But I imagine something like that actually goes a long way to putting a, a, a young man who's joining the European Champions at ease actually rather than freaking him out. Yeah, well, that, but, you know, they were all like that. They were all they were all absolutely just so down to earth. Ronnie Moran, Joe Fagan, Tom Saunders. Um, all, all those kind of guys, guys, they were, they were just absolutely great. And Bob was just Bob. If Bob didn't speak to you about football or the way you were playing, you, you knew straight away that you were doing something right. And okay. he, would, he would occasionally say something. And, and, a, and a really nice little story, actually, because um, I got in the team straight away and we played away at Arsenal. Arsenal had a good side in those days as well. Tony Woodcock was up front. It was a good good player, Tony Tony Woodcock. And we played at Arsenal. I think we beat them one or two nil. And um, me and Hanson played at the back. And I, that particular day, I just kept coming out from the back with a ball and beat a couple of players and played someone in and all that kind of stuff. And it was the lead game on match of the day on the Saturday night. <laughs> 
and um, Jimmy Hill, God love him, Jimmy Hill did this analysis on me. He said, oh, well, he signed this prayer and look what he can do. And he said, him and Hanson are just exactly the same. And he went, now there's two of them, not just and all that kind of stuff. So the Monday morning, we're at Melwood training and we're kind of warming up and stuff. And, uh, and and Bob didn't, Bob watched training, but he very rarely sort of came out and stood there in the cold. He would, he would, he had a, a little office and he like, we knew what he was doing because he was looking out the window and the radiator was underneath the window. It was, it was, it was warming his you-know-whats in front, in, in front of the window <laughs> while he was watching. And he, came, he, said, oh, oh. he said, Mark, can I have a word? And I said, yeah, boss. He said, uh, did you watch Match of the Day on Saturday night? And I said, yeah, I did. He said, yeah, so did everybody else and walked away. And basically what he was saying that, you know, whatever I'd done on the Saturday, everyone else had seen what I'd done. So just be careful. That's just the way that he was. He made you think about things. I actually love that. You know, that's that's the, the kind of delightful understatement that, you know, again, it's the stuff of legend, Mark, because it's the kind of stuff that, you know, I don't know how, how you feel about it. Maybe you're a lot more sympathetic to it. But sometimes I get just a little bit sketchy about the um, hyper analysis that happens in the modern game now. And when you hear a story like that, I mean, that's instantly clear what that man meant. Well, you know. Yeah, well, the other thing, when they signed Graham Sinness, and Graham's got, Charlie's we call him, he's got a book out at the moment, and that the story about when he went to Joe Fagan in before his first game and said, how do you want me to play? And Joe told him to F off. He said, he said, what, <laughs> you, what the F in hell have we signed you for if you don't know how to play? He said, go on, lad, get on with it. And that he was that's what Joe always said, go on, lad. He always called you a lad. It was great, wasn't it? You could have yeah. like, superstars and, yes, lad, what's the problem? He was just top man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to just draw this first part of, of, of the interview to a close with, with just a little bit of a picture of your early days there, because I, I, I focused with the other guys uh, on that just specific period where, you know, you're absolutely the new boy. Uh, you're walking into the changing room of the European Championships or champions. I'm assuming there was an, a big intimidation factor. and I'm wondering, were there any familiar faces there for you to gravitate towards or uh, you, you, how did that all work out for you? Well, there was, um, who, who was Ronnie Whelan was on the staff. Uh, obviously, Ronnie was around. Kevin Sheedy. Um, that was sort of basically it. But I was, um, I'd made my mind up that I was going to live in Southport, being a Preston boy, kind of Southport's, you know, equidistant between uh, Preston and Liverpool. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll buy a house in in Southport. And and um, Kenny Dalglish of all people, he said, "Where are you going to live? Have you thought about it?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm going to live in Southport." He said, "I live in Southport." He said, "Um, he said, I'll tell you what." Next week after training, we haven't got a game. He says, I'll take you to the estate agents and I'll drive you around and all that kind of stuff. And, and he did. Um, so he was, so he was my chauffeur for the first couple of weeks. Um, so that was, that was quite interesting. And, and so, and I, I've, this is again, the, the, for, for, for a young guy reading shoot and shoot, by the way, back in the day, you used to get, mm. my, you, you got bugger all really, Mark. It was, it was, it was little, little snippets. I mean, compared to the information that people have now about what fellas are having for their breakfast, we got little drip fed little bits, but this, uh, tale of you. And I think it was Kenny and, and, and Hansen and at least one other person whose name escapes me now. I, I think you guys used to travel from Southport together. It was Ronnie. Ronnie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that, that was that a thing? You used to carpool to training? Yeah. From, from Southport? Yeah, yeah, taking turns. And uh, and it was great until it was Hansen's turn to drive because he failed his driving test. It took him four tests to pass. 
Um, and he was hopeless. He is absolutely hopeless driver. And still, of all the things that that boy that boy played for Scotland at three different things: golf, squash, and football. And like me, he learnt Latin at school and all those kind of things. And he honestly, you never ever get in the car with him. He's hopeless. <laughs> that's that's absolutely a perfect point for us to end this first part of the interview with Mark Lawrenson. And we will return for part two very soon. Podcast Network.